It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 345 for the 2nd of June, 2013. This week, security isn't something that only large commercial websites need. If you're looking for a powerful video editing application at a reasonable price, I have a suggestion. And in short circuits, did Adobe perform any market research before launching Creative Cloud? 2013 looks like the year of the tablet, and Facebook can't find a way to get rid of hate speech. If you operate a website, maybe even just a hobby website or something for your club, you probably think it doesn't need any security. Your website doesn't sell a product, doesn't sell a service, at least not directly on the website. You don't accept online payments. There's no credit card information stored on the site. You don't even ask people to register their names or email addresses. It's just a site for your club members, or it's a place where you can show off your hobby. No big deal for security, right? Well wrong. In fact, your site might be an ideal target for cyber crooks, not for the valuable data they can find and carry away. We've already said that you don't store any there. Instead, the crooks will find security holes in your site, and they'll exploit those to plant malware on visitors' computers, or they'll surreptitiously create a directory or a subsite on your server and use that for their illegal acts. This isn't going to be very popular with the people who visit your site. What can you do? Well, there's an organization called the Open Web Application Security Project, or OWASP for short, and they have a top 10 project. The top 10 project lists the 10 most serious threats each year, and each New Year's report bears a distressing similarity to the previous year's report. Actually, I suppose this is to be expected because the report doesn't list specific exploits that take advantage of a particular piece of software or hardware. Instead, it focuses on types of errors that can be exploited. Types of errors. OWASP is a nonprofit organization founded in 2001. It counts 36,000 participants worldwide. OWASP's mission involves explaining online security threats particularly those that are web-based, and providing crowd-based guidance for mitigating the problems. Most of the top 10 threats have been the top 10 threats for the last 10 years, and there's no likelihood that they're going to fade away anytime soon, even though they've all been well identified. Programmers, being both human, at least we think they're human, and creatures of habit, tend to make the same kinds of mistakes year after year. Hence the similarities from year to year in OWASP's report. And the bad guys, being persistent, won't stop trying if their first attempt is blocked. Instead, they'll try other vulnerabilities and other known functions. All that's needed is one small hole. First released in 2003, the goal of the Top 10 project is to raise awareness about application security by identifying some of the most critical 
risks facing organizations. It's really only the beginning, though, OWASP says, and I quote, there are hundreds of issues that could affect the overall security of a web application. In fact, neither the overall Internet nor the area known as the web was designed with security in mind. Initially, these were technologies designed for sharing information. There was no expectation that they would ever be used for commerce. So whatever security measures exist have simply been bolted on as an afterthought. This alone explains why so many problems exist. The best solution would be simply to start over and design a secure network from the ground up. Think that's going to happen? Probably not anytime soon. All right, probably not ever. So the second best solution is for developers to place security ahead of functionality. Unfortunately, that's not going to happen either, because functionality that provides known benefits has more intrinsic appeal both to programmers and visitors than protecting against unknown threats. So realistically, all we can hope for is an environment in which developers carefully assess the risk of each type of technology they use and actively build in protections that mitigate the threats. For starters, any application or website should be reviewed to ensure that the OWASP top 10 threats have been resolved. These aren't obscure or unknown threats, and most of them have clear strategies for remediation. It's difficult to understand why some of the attack vectors continue to be in the top 10 year after year. Take, for example, the number one threat. It's called injection. An injection occurs when untrusted data is sent to a command interpreter. The attacker's hostile data can trick the interpreter into executing unintended commands or accessing unauthorized data. For example, a website form might ask for a name or a phone number or an email address and then depend solely on browser-based validation. When the value entered by the user reaches the web server, it's passed to the database server without any further testing. In this scenario, a crook can include a bit of punctuation and a command that would cause the server to return a dump of the entire database. The solution is really simple, though. Regardless of any validation that's performed on the browser, all data that arrives at the server must be considered suspect. The developer simply creates what's called a whitelist of acceptable characters, and only those characters are accepted. Typically, the characters include numbers, uppercase letters, lowercase letters, and a few very specific punctuation characters. Everything else is removed before the value is passed on to the database. End of problem. Simple, huh? The other primary vulnerabilities in the top 10 range from broken authentication and what's called cross-site scripting to security misconfiguration and failure to install security updates. Now, a lot of those threats are pretty difficult for people who aren't developers to understand without really complex and ponderous explanations, so you're not going to get those here. But security updates are both critically needed and easy to comprehend. Most website hosting companies offer various add-ons. Bluehost, for example, offers a service called Simple Scripts that provides several dozen applications. These range from content management systems and guest books to forums, surveys, and full website development tools. Each of the applications is routinely updated. 
Some of the functions that can be installed on your website have more potential vulnerabilities and are therefore updated more frequently. WordPress, for example, is a popular target because it is a complex piece of software used on hundreds of thousands of websites, sometimes by people who have no understanding of security. Simply put, no application is ever perfect, so when an application is updated, install the update. Don't wait. Installing updates is one of the easiest but most critical safeguards. Simply make sure that anything installed on your web server is up to date. Bluehost, which is the service that serves the TechBiter Worldwide website, and it's also the service that most of my clients use, does an excellent job of keeping the base software patched and updated. As with virtually all site hosting services, Bluehost runs on open source software that is frequently updated. It's good that the code is open source because the good guys can look for weaknesses that might be exploited and fix them. It's also bad that the code is open source because the bad guys can look for weaknesses that might be exploited and use them. That's why the updates are so important. Few, if any, hosting operations will update any applications that you have installed, whether via something like Simple Scripts or something that you've installed manually on your own. You can, for example, install WordPress either manually or using Simple Scripts, but then it's up to you to check for updates regularly and install them. The hosting companies won't do this because updates can break existing applications if those installations have been improperly modified by the user. Some content management systems, such as WordPress, and I'm not trying to pick on WordPress here, it's just a good handy example and it's widely used. Some content management systems, such as WordPress, accept plugins that can improve security, but these need to be updated frequently, too. Or you might consider SiteLock. That's a third-party service offered by many hosting companies. SiteLock monitors your site daily to detect malware, identify vulnerabilities, and scan for any virus code that might have been planted on your website. Here's a really quick security lesson. 777. This is not your lucky number. Most websites reside on Linux servers, and Linux controls folder and file access by assigning what are called read, write, and execute permissions for each of three classes of users. 777 means that everyone can do anything to the file. The classes are used to identify the file or folder owner the group that the file owner belongs to, and then everybody else, also known as the world. Permissions are stated numerically. 4 means the user can read the file or folder. 2 allows writing the file or folder. 1 indicates execute permission, and 0, as you probably already expect, means you can't do anything to it. So each of the three user types is represented by a single number. 751, for example, means the owner can read, write, and execute the file. You get 7 by adding 4, 2, and 1. The group can read and execute the file but not modify it. That would be 5, which is 4 plus 1. And all other users may only execute the file but not read or write it, so the permission is 1. And here's how people can get into trouble. Perl is a scripting language commonly used on websites. Inexperienced website developers sometimes try to install a Perl script, find that it doesn't work because of some problem with permissions, and then set the file and directory that contains it to 777. Bad move. Now anybody who has access to the site can modify the file. 
In most cases, folders should be set to 755, files to 644. If you're interested in Linux permissions, there are lots of resources on the World Wide Web. And for your website, there are some acceptable risks. After all, we live in a world of acceptable risks. You get in your car, drive across town, you know you could be run over by a large truck, you know you could be hit by a falling meteor. Both of these are pretty unlikely, though, so most of us would accept those risks. With websites, there are acceptable risks, too. But any exploit that has been clearly defined, and particularly those in the OWASP Top 10, really must be eliminated. The threats are real. Don't be sorry. In an increasingly crowded marketplace, Magix has released Video Pro X5. Magix, although very well known in Europe, is less familiar in the United States. Video Pro is available with a 30-day trial, after which you can license one of the three versions or uninstall it. Be careful during the installation process to select the custom installation process. If you don't, you'll get an extra browser toolbar that you don't want and a system cleaning utility. This is a despicable practice and one that I feel should be made illegal. If you choose the custom installation process, you can deselect both, otherwise they're going to be added without warning. Following the installation, when you start Video Pro, you can watch an introductory video, open an existing video project once you have one, or create a new project using a template or create one from scratch. If you've used any video editing application previously, you'll be familiar with the layout. Preview and source selections in the top half of the screen, a timeline at the bottom, and a viewing area in the middle. As with most editing applications, you can view the timeline in a traditional editing layout or as a series of thumbnail views, sort of like a storyboard. Icons are provided to allow adding text, adjusting the volume of the sound, and inserting transitions between clips. A razor icon provides the ability to trim the video clips with options to simply split the clip, split and remove either everything before the cut or after the cut, delete the entire scene, or split the movie. There's also a fine-tuning option that allows more precise placement of the edit point. The real magic's magic, though, is fixing wobbly video. Most of us have not invested in a steady cam, and we can't hold the camera steady. This is particularly true in my 30-second test video you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website. A nearby shopping mall is undergoing renovation, and I walked over one day with a point-and-shoot camera. Holding the camera away from your body as required with such cameras makes the situation even worse. Video Pro offers stabilization, which is a remarkable function for a $400 application. And yes, that's considerably more than other video applications from Magix, some of which are well under $100. But $400 for image stabilization? That would have been unthinkable not many years ago. I created two versions of my video, before and after. And even with minimal stabilization, the difference is astounding. Despite warnings from the program that applying stabilization might take a long time, I found it to be surprisingly fast. Check out the videos on the TechBiter Worldwide website. I can't show them to you here on the podcast. We don't have a picture. 
Video Pro allows for picture-in-picture effect, provides color correction capabilities, makes it possible to slow or speed scenes, and add text bubbles or other hokey stuff to your video. And, of course, there are lots of transition effects. As always, my warning here is that a simple cut or fade is almost always the best choice. Select one of the special effects only when you can clearly state to yourself why you need to use it. The software lets you export your edited digital movie in a wide array of formats, as well as burn movies to disc in Blu-ray, AVCHD, or DVD format. Bottom line, 5 cats powerful video editing at a reasonable price. Now, not everybody's going to consider $400 to be a reasonable price, but the powerful features offered in Magic's Video Pro X5 could cost a lot more. And if that price is a bit too high for your budget, Magix offers several other options for beginner or mid-range video enthusiasts. For more information, visit the Magix website. You will, of course, find a link to it on the TechBiter Worldwide website. circuits, I have to wonder whether Adobe actually performed any market research before launching Creative Cloud. This is another one of those occasional opinion pieces. There is no question that Adobe Creative Cloud offers some very real advantages. Among these advantages is lower cost for people who upgrade to each new version, and given the speed with which things change in the graphic arts industry, I expected that would describe most users. Well, it seems I was wrong, and that pushback from Adobe users looks a lot like the pushback Microsoft is receiving from Windows users. I've heard from people who are active in the graphics community, but who are nearing retirement age. I guess I'll stick with CS6, is what they generally say, and I found that not to be too surprising. What did surprise me is that I'm hearing the same thing from people who are active in the graphics community and who are nowhere near retirement age. These are people who might choose to upgrade their Adobe applications every other release or maybe every third release. If you update every other release, the new Creative Cloud offering will still actually cost you less. Every third release? Well, maybe you'll pay a little more that way, but at least you'll have the opportunity to download the latest version of every application. The trouble is, I think, that people don't like to feel as if they're being forced to make a change, even when that change is good for them. Look at Windows 8. It's faster, it's more secure, but oh my goodness, there is no start menu. The pushback from Windows users has been so strong that Microsoft appears to be ready to retreat in version 8.1 and restore the start menu, even though it's completely unnecessary. Is Adobe going to suffer that same fate? It seems to me that it's better to allow applications to evolve. Allow people who want to buy or license one version of the software and then stick with it for 12 or 18 or 24 months to do exactly that. When they decide to upgrade, it's going to cost them more. All right, so what? At least they'll feel like they're in control. Initially, which is to say several weeks ago, I thought that Adobe had made a good decision. But I came to that conclusion without the benefit of any market analysis. In fact, I assumed that Adobe had done its homework and had found that offering only Creative Cloud 
would be popular with all or at least a majority of Adobe users. Based on what I've heard from users, Adobe has made a potentially serious marketing error, and companies such as On One are moving to take advantage of it. An email message from the maker of Perfect Photo Suite, which works with Photoshop, says that the latest version of the software will work with or without Photoshop. If you're moving to Creative Cloud, then Perfect Photo Suite is the perfect complement to your Photoshop workflow, the message says, giving you an easy way to do things that are difficult and time-consuming to do in Photoshop. The suite also works perfectly in the new Lightroom 5. On the other side, the message said, well, if you think Photoshop is too cumbersome and complicated, or if you find Photoshop Creative Cloud unappealing, you can use Perfect Photo Suite to do many tasks that normally require Photoshop. And Lightroom users, including version 5, will find that the suite is the perfect companion product. And that's just the beginning. I suspect that other plug-in makers are going to start moving to make their applications work in a standalone mode, too. Thirteen sure looks like it's going to be the year of the tablet. PC sales, both for desktop systems and notebooks, are down and continue to drop, but sales of tablets are headed for the roof. International Data Corporation, IDC, tracks computer sales and earlier had predicted a drop of about one and one-half percent from last year's sales in regular computers. This week, it changed that estimate to predict a drop of nearly eight percent. Tablet computers are on track to outsell other types of computers for the first time this year. IDC had expected that to happen, but not until next year. The estimates suggest that about 230 million tablet computers will be sold. That's about 60% higher than last year. Notebook computer sales will drop to about 190 million. That's down from around 201 million last year. IDC says that by 2015, tablets will probably sell more units than desktop and notebook computers combined. Now that's not to suggest that desktop and notebook computers are going to vanish as a breed. After all, some applications need the power and storage that only a larger computer can provide. But tablets offer near-PC-like capabilities for people who are on the go. Many people who put off purchasing new computers during the worst of the recession are buying again, but they're adding tablets instead of replacing desktops or notebooks. They're going to hang on to those for a couple more years. IDC says it expects the sale of more traditional computers to begin increasing again in 2015, with gains primarily in the notebook market coupled with continuing declines in the sales of desktop systems. Eliminating hate speech from services such as Facebook isn't censorship, and it's not being politically correct. Free speech is not guaranteed on forums that are owned and operated by any company or individuals. If you use the service, you're obligated to play by the rules. Likewise, there are legal prohibitions against hate speech. 
But Facebook says the process it uses to eliminate hate speech hasn't worked as well as expected. As a result, advertisers are reacting to pushback from women's groups and are dropping their Facebook ads. A blog by Facebook's safety team said that the company had been working to improve their system and to respond to reports of violations. The systems haven't eliminated all content that violates Facebook's standards, the post said, but then it promised to do better. A group called Women Action and the Media has asked Facebook to work with advertisers whose ads appear on pages that feature hate speech. The group released an open letter that says Facebook needs to improve its efforts to remove content that trivializes or glorifies violence against girls or women. Speaking of Facebook, remember the initial public offering that was so widely considered to have been botched? Well, now NASDAQ says it will pay a $10 million fine resulting from that IPO. The U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission says that several decisions by NASDAQ on the day of the IPO last year created several regulatory violations. NASDAQ will pay the fine to settle civil charges. The exchange's errors caused more than 30,000 Facebook orders to sit without action for two hours. The orders should have been executed or canceled. As a result of the errors, investors lost some $500 million. As is usual in events such as this, NASDAQ agreed to pay the fine, but without admitting any guilt or problem. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.